this program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Bill Moyers, Counterspin, Best of the Left Activism, and Radio Dispatch. And just a quick note that a huge number of the supporters of charter schools are in it for the absolute right reasons, just trying to do what's best for the kids. As always, it's the moneyed interests pulling the strings we have to look out for. The Chicago teachers union had gone on strike in an attempt to prevent the closure of 50 schools in Chicago. You recall that Rahm Emanuel claimed that there was simply no funding for these schools. And simultaneously also financing uh, essentially a uh, private arena for a university to the tune of a hundred plus million dollars. At the time, the Chicago Teachers Union had claimed that this is part of a privatization scheme. And it now seems that those charges have been borne out. Just two and a half months after a historic vote to close 50 schools, Chicago is laying the groundwork to bring more charter schools to the city. Look, there is no evidence that charter schools in the aggregate perform better than public schools. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that says that in many cases they perform worse. In New York City, we have seen uh, a, a new round of test results that have come out that have showed that charter schools perform no better than the public schools. What we do know is that charter schools engage in what is called creaming. They get the best of the best of students. They in many instances are able to weed out problem students in a way that public schools are not. They already are, uh, their pool of students is already self-selecting in some respects because many of them uh, are, uh, accept kids through lotteries, which means that parents have to make an affirmative act to get into a lottery and get their kids into the school and it is the involvement of parents which is often a huge determinant as to whether or not a kid's going to be successful in school. You have charter schools draining resources from public schools. I don't, I'm not against all charter schools. Charter schools are a good idea to the extent that they develop, that they are experimental, that they develop things that could be scalable across the board. There's been not a lot of that, as far as I'm concerned. What, what is happening now is that a means is now becoming an ends. And part of that ends is simply to destroy teachers' unions. And I can tell you that charter schools also benefit greatly from the fact that you have for-profit entities running these schools often, people uh, getting big salaries or and also they have uh, it's to a large extent it is just proven to be in many cases a way of just soaking the taxpayer of money 
and providing some type of outlet for uh, gala benefits. Uh, other things that Bill de Blasio is, um, is proposing, the idea of universal pre-K, uh, pre I think, is huge. Because, you know, what I have come to understand about the sort of relentless, in New York City, the schools are, it's not like living in uh, a community where there's one school. Your kid goes to the school. Hopefully it's good. If it's not, then you work to make it better. In New York, it's constant um, seeking out of schools, and particularly when, once you get to middle school, and that process starts when the kid's like three. And one of the things that's quite clear is that, A, schools that, do, that are, are better, it's not even necessarily a function of what the school is doing. It's a function of who their students are. The more students you have in any given class that have problems learning because of either uh, learning challenges that they have, because of behavioral challenges that they have, or because they come from families that are poor, uh, families that have um, less resources to spend on getting the kids up to speed, sending them to pre-K. Uh, they don't have the resources to send them to pre-K, where kids learn to socialize better, and they learn the basic fundamental things about just simply being in a classroom uh, that don't in any way, by the time they get to kindergarten and first grade, stand in the way from other kids um, learning. Uh, they also, at that time, begin to identify that if the kids have any type of problems that need to be addressed. Uh, I've stated it many times on this program, but a low-income child enters in with a 20,000-word listening vocabulary deficit versus well-to-do kids. And that is simply because they haven't had the experiences that kids of wealth do, or even upper middle class. Their parents don't have the time to spend with them because they may be working multiple jobs. Both parents are working and both parents are working multiple jobs. Uh, the parents themselves may have a um, smaller or lower amount of education. So these kids come in with a deficit already. And the idea of charter schools is becoming clearer and clearer that it is a racket. There are some schools that are good, no doubt about it. There are some charter schools that are excellent, just like there are some public schools that are excellent. There are some charter schools that are really bad, just like public schools that are really bad. In aggregate, there's not much difference, and to the extent there's any evidence, public schools do better. And if charter schools replace public schools, I can assure you, you're going to have the same problems that you see in public schools. The difference will be that part of the money is skimmed off 
for these privatized notions. Less money will go to teachers. And eventually you will have all the problems that you have with public schools in the aggregate, but they'll be worse. This is not even to talk about the, um, the problem of high-stakes testing. So this is just basically an end route. I mean, yes, we're privatizing the commons to, to some degree, but it's part of a larger push to simply privatize. And uh, put money in pockets of people who aren't necessarily any more interested or qualified to educate our kids than anybody else. So the Chicago public school system closed 50 schools. And the district then posted an official request for proposals that invites charter schools to apply to open shop in what the school district has identified as priority neighborhoods. These are the same areas where the schools were closed. Chicago's teachers union and others have argued for years the school closures are about making way for charters and weakening the union. Union President Karen Lewis says we're not surprised at all by this. We were called conspiracy theorists and then here is absolute proof of what the intentions are. The district has clearly made a decision that they want to push privatization on our public schools. Teachers at charters cannot be represented by the Chicago Teachers Union. Period. End of story. That's all you need to know. You know, I hitchhiked from Chicago, and a man walked up and said, This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. And if you come to strip our rights away, we'll give you hell every time. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. Charter schools are booming and controversial. There are now more than 6,000 across the country, double the number from just a decade ago. They're publicly funded but privately run. And whatever you think about the merit of charter schools versus public schools, merit is no longer driving the debate. What's driving the debate is money. The charter movement is now part of the growing privatization of public education, and Wall Street sees an emerging market. Take a look at this piece published last fall on Forbes.com. Quote, dozens of bankers, hedge fund types, and private equity investors gathered to discuss investing in for-profit education companies. There's a potential gold rush here. Public education from kindergarten through high school pulls in more than $500 billion in taxpayer revenues every year. And crony capitalists and politicians alike are cashing in. Example, in Ohio, two firms, both contributors to Republicans, operate 9% of the state's charter schools and are collecting 38% of the state's charter school funding increase. In Philadelphia, a Democratic stronghold, 23 public schools closed for good last summer to be replaced by charters. Here in New York City, Progressive Mayor Bill de Blasio set out to curb the charter school poaching of public education. But in recent weeks, the charter movement, bankrolled by wealthy financiers, struck back hard with the media campaign costing more than three and a half million dollars. Under this withering assault, Mayor de Blasio has turned conciliatory, determined, according to the New York Times, to avoid the wrath of a well-financed charter school movement. 
even dialing up billionaires personally asking for a truce. The private buying of public education has brought a piercing cry of alarm for my guest. Once a champion of charter schools, she's changed her mind, and that was a reversal that struck home with a seismic wallop. Diane Rabbit is our preeminent historian of education. She's worked for presidents from both parties and served as an assistant secretary of education. She's a scholar with a popular following. In the last year alone, her website has received more than 8 million visits. Her teaching, writing, and advocacy have long influenced our debate about schools and the public policies that affect them. And her latest book is a bestseller, Reign of Era, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. Diane Ravitch, welcome. It's wonderful to be with you, Bill. We're talking about big money, aren't we? Absolutely. At minimum, at least from the estimates I've seen, it's an annual market of $500 billion. So the entrepreneurs do see it as huge opportunities to make money. There are now frequently conferences, at least annually conferences, on how to profit from the public education industry. Now, I never thought of public education as an industry, uh, but the entrepreneurs do see it as a national marketplace uh, for hardware, for software, for textbook publishing, for selling whatever it is they're selling, and for actually taking over uh, all of the uh, roles of running a school. This is what the charter movement is, is an effort to privatize public education uh, because there's so much money there that enough of it can be extracted to pay off the investors. But I think what's at stake is the future of American public education. I'm a graduate of public schools in Houston, Texas, and I don't want to see us lose public education. I believe it is the foundation stone, one of the foundation stones of our democracy. So an attack on public education is an attack on democracy. The people behind privatization, you say they're flush with cash. Where is it coming from? Where does this money trail start? You have to understand that, firstly, uh, we do have a, a significant number of for-profit charter schools. They're not the majority by any means, but they're driving a lot of the legislative changes. Uh, th there's also the power of the federal government. Uh, our Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, put out $4.3 billion, called Race to the Top, and he said to the states, you can't be eligible for any part of this money unless you lift your cap on charter schools. So suddenly, uh, the, the lure of getting that federal money made many states change their laws to open the door uh, to uh, many, many more charter schools. So that's really what's driven the increase in charters. Uh, but what the other thing that's driven them is uh, that there is a, a tremendous political force of very wealthy hedge fund managers who are investing in the charter school industry and seeing it uh, grow. And so they have fought for these laws. There's also a lot of charter school money going as political contributions uh, to legislators in many of the states where the charters are, are booming. There's a move right now to change Dallas into a chartered district. And it's promoted by the billionaire John Arnold, who's been in the news recently for his views on pension plans. Do you take that sort of thing seriously? I think it has to be taken seriously because uh, John Arnold, of course, uh, wants to change public sector pensions. And I have a kind of a visceral negative reaction to the idea that someone who's a billionaire doesn't want to see a public employee retire with a decent living pension that they've put into all their life. I don't like the idea that billionaires who have no appreciation of the importance of public education want to change it to their liking. No one elected John Arnold to do this. 
But I think that Dallas is at risk, and the people of Dallas don't want this. And I think if democracy works in Dallas, they will reject this idea of somehow taking Dallas and turning it the whole city into a charter district. You have said that within 10 years there will be cities in this country without public education. I think at the rate we're moving now, we will see places like Detroit, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Kansas City, Indianapolis, and many, many other cities where public schools become, if they still exist, they will be a dumping ground for the kids that the charter schools don't want. We will see the privatization of public education run rampant. But not everyone will grieve with you over the loss of public education. There are parents across the country who feel that public schools have let them and their children down, and they're looking for alternatives. One of the points that I wanted to make strongly in, in this book is that American public education is not failing, it's not declining. It's Contrary not to the prevailing public mythology. Absolutely. American public schools deal with immense problems. The biggest problem in our society today is that nearly 25% of our children live in poverty. And most of those kids will go to public schools and will bring all their problems through the door. And teachers will tell you they have kids in their classroom where a parent was murdered, where the children didn't get anything to eat yesterday, where the children are homeless. These are the problems our public schools are dealing with, and they're, in most cases, doing an absolutely heroic job. But where public schools are in trouble, it's because the community is in trouble. And instead of breaking up public schools and sending the kids off to, into the hands of some entrepreneurs, uh, we should be addressing the needs and problems of the children. If the for-profit motive were taken out of charter schools, do you think they have potential? No, because uh, I think that what charter schools should be is what they were originally supposed to be. They were originally supposed to be uh, collaborative, cooperating with public schools, trying to solve problems that public schools couldn't solve. The original idea was that they would go out and find the dropouts and bring them back. They would help the kids who lacked all motivation and bring these lessons back to public schools to help them. What they have become is cutthroat competitors. And in fact, because of No Child Left Behind and because of Race to the Top, there is so much emphasis on test scores that the charters are incentivized to try to get the highest possible scores. And now that there are so many hedge fund people involved, they want to win. Uh, they want to say to the guys who are on another school board, my charter got higher scores than yours. So if you're going to make scores the be-all and the end-all of education, you don't want the kids with disabilities. You don't want the kids who don't speak English. You don't want the troublemakers. You don't want the kids with low scores. You want to keep those kids out. And the, the charters have gotten very good at finding out how to do that. Charter schools are not all bad, are they? They're not all bad. The worst thing about the charters is uh, the profit motive. And, and I want to reiterate that most charters are not for profit, although many of the nonprofits are run by for-profit organizations. Uh, for instance, in Ohio, where they're overrun with uh, for-profit operations, they're actually not for-profit charters. It's just they're run by a company, in one case called the White Hat uh, Company, which has uh, extracted about a billion dollars in taxpayer funds since 1999. Uh, in Florida, where there are some uh, nearly 600 charter schools, they're overrun with for-profit schools. Uh, in Michigan, more than 80% of the charter schools operate for profit. Uh, they don't get good academic results, by the way, but they make a lot of money. And the worst of the charters, frankly, are the virtual charters. This is a money-making machine. Virtual charters? These are uh, charter schools that have no, actually no physical school. 
and they advertise very heavily, and they're in many states. The biggest of the companies is called K-12. It was funded by Michael Milken and his brother, and uh, they're very profitable because they get full state tuition signing up kids to learn online. So the kids are basically homeschooled. They get a computer and textbooks, and then they learn online. And they may have one teacher monitoring, in some cases, more than 100 screens. The te teachers are low paid. Uh, they don't have any physical building to take care of, no custodians, no social workers, uh, none of the regular expenses of a school. They're very profitable. Uh, K-12, by the way, is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. I'm impressed, but not If you're looking to give viewers an explanation of a controversial public policy, would it make sense to hear only from one person who's invested millions of dollars in advancing one side? Well, most journalists would say, of course not. But if you tuned into ABC's This Week on March 16th, that's what you saw. The policy in question, the Common Core Standards, a plan to develop national achievement benchmarks for public schools. Critics on the right see a progressive plan to squash local control. Others say the standards are poorly designed, intended to enrich testing companies and give more ammunition to those invested in the narrative of public school failure. ABC's guest was Bill Gates, the billionaire who's been pouring money into Common Core as part of his overall support for corporate-style education reform. The questions from host George Stephanopoulos were pretty soft. He told viewers that Gates was there to fight back at critics, but all viewers heard that was critical came from right-wing talk show host Glenn Beck. It's not that Gates shouldn't be interviewed about the topic. He's a key funder of the movement, but that doesn't make him an expert on schools or teaching. And if there's a controversy over Common Core, shouldn't viewers get more than one side? One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. On your blog, there's a speech by the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings. He seems to be saying that 20 years from now, 90% of our school children will be in charter 
schools and that we have to get rid of school boards because all this democracy is very messy and everything should be managed by charter-like boards. Is that the end game? Is the charterization of American public education? I think for many people in the charter movement, that is the end game. They want to see an end to public education. Uh, they continue to say that charter schools are public schools. They are not public schools because uh, they say in court, whenever asked, uh, we're private corporations with a contract with the government. Uh, in fact, uh, just recently, uh, there was a decision in New York that charter schools can't be audited by the state controller because they are not a unit of the government. In California, there was a decision in the federal court saying charter schools are not public schools. They're private corporations. So this puts their accountability off limits, right? Right. And in fact, in many states, the charter schools don't have to hire certified teachers. So we're moving in a direction that is harmful to democracy, uh, that is not good for kids, uh, and that will not improve education. And so when you say, how do I feel about the charter movement, uh, I'd say that it should return to its original purposes, which is to help the neediest kids, uh, to seek out the kids with the lowest test scores, not the highest ones, and to collaborate with public education to make it better. Uh, but what it has turned into is an attack on democracy and an effort to replace public education that if 90% of all the kids are in charters, the other 10% that's left, that's called public schools, will be the dumping grounds for the kids that the charters don't want. That's the direct attack on our democracy. Would you concede, though, Dan, that it's, it's possible, Reed Hastings and others, believe that democracy can't solve these problems, that you need private entrepreneurs who know how to get things done uh, to run these schools? The problem with letting the entrepreneurs do it is they know nothing about education. I think what Reed Hastings doesn't understand is that the highest performing nations in the world don't have charter schools and do not have voucher schools. The highest performing nations in the world have a very fine, very equitable public school system. Uh, I was in Finland not long ago. They aim to have an equitable school system, and it doesn't matter where you go to school, in that country, you will find a good school. That's what we should be aiming for. You aim for equity and you will get excellence. When you were on the money trail, looking at how this money influences the movement, you ran into the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. What did you learn about ALEC? ALEC is an organization, as I discovered, that's been around since 1973. It has something like uh, 2,000 or more state legislators who belong to it. And ALEC is very, very interested in eliminating public education. It has model legislation, which has been copied in state after state, in some cases verbatim. Uh, ALEC wants to eliminate collective bargaining, and it's done a good job on that. It wants to eliminate uh, any due process for teachers so that teachers can be fired for any reason. It wants teachers to be judged by test scores. It's done a really good job of that. It wants charter schools. It has uh, charter legislation. It has voucher legislation. It has legislation to promote online charter schools. Where's Alec's money come from as you found it? Uh, Alec has uh, major, major corporate funding. Uh, it's hard to find a major corporate uh, group uh, that is not part of the corporate sponsorship of Alec. What's their motive? Alec wants money to flow freely throughout the economy. They do not want any restraints on how they spend and where they spend. They don't even want to be audited if they can avoid that. That's why the charter schools, for example, have fought in court to prevent public audits. 
uh, because they share this philosophy that what they do is their business. So when you set out to follow the money and see how money was driving the privatization movement, what surprised you the most? What surprised me the most, quite frankly, was the lack of any leadership in the Democratic Party to say no. And as I saw the amount of campaign contributions in state after state going to both parties, as I realized that anyone who wants to run for president has to go to Wall Street, uh, it became very frightening to think that there might be a political way to actually stop this movement to destroy public education and to monetize public education. Uh, you're almost as old as I am. What keeps you going? Well, you know, what really makes my juices flow is when I see billionaires picking on teachers. When I see billionaires who have never gone to public school, have never sent their children to public school, or their grandchildren if they have them, proclaiming how schools should run and how teachers should teach. I find myself outraged that our public school system is not being strengthened and improved. I don't want it to stay the way it is. I'm not defending the status quo. When I see a status quo that's controlled by the wealthiest people in our country, an alliance with the political power in our country, it makes me want to rail against it, and I'm railing against it as best I can. You end your book, in fact, by avowing that the public is not yet ready to relinquish its public schools to speculators, entrepreneurs, ideologues, snake oil salesmen, profit-making businesses, and Wall Street hedge fund managers. How can you be so sure? Well, it's because I see what's happening uh, at the ground level. Um, I, w working with other people in education, with parent activists, with educators, I uh, helped to found a group called the Network for Public Education. Uh, we have parents, we have uh, teachers, we have students, high school students. They're organizing all over the country to fight back. Uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, it's the Providence Student Union. Uh, in Texas, it's the, uh, uh, what I call the, the Moms Against Drunk Testing. Uh, and they actually have a longer name than that. <laughs> uh, and uh, there are parent groups in Ohio, in Indiana, uh, in Louisiana, in the Mama Bears in Tennessee, uh, in Florida, which is one of the keystone states for this kind of what I call corporate reform, where Jeb Bush basically owns that state. Uh, he tried twice to get across something called the parent trigger, where parents could take a vote and 51% of them could turn their school over to a corporation. And the parents of Florida, despite the fact that Florida has an all-red legislature, stopped that bill now twice. So I see the parents of Florida and, uh, and all over this country saying, we don't want the corporations taking over our schools. So it's, that, it's the grassroots that I'm counting on. It's democracy that I'm counting on. Now, can democracy beat big money? Um, we'll find out later. You spoke recently in Austin, and the title of your speech was Why We Will Win. I was speaking to, to uh, the Network for Public Education. That's your group. Um, my group. Yeah, they're so from all over the country. They came from, 400 people came from all over the country. They paid their own way. We have no corporate sponsorship. We have no foundation money. We actually raised money amongst ourselves to pay scholarships for the kids to come, the high school students who came. So... There are two reasons we're going to win. Number one is because everything that these reformers, these so-called reformers are doing is failing. The charter schools are not outperforming the public schools, and the voucher schools don't outperform the public schools. Uh, despite not taking the kids that they don't want, vouchers do not outperform public schools. 
uh, evaluating teachers by test scores, which is one of the big principles of the, these corporate reformers, has been a disaster. Uh, there are many cities and districts that have ended up firing the teacher of the year. Uh, there are many teachers. We are having, in fact, a huge crisis in teaching because so many teachers are leaving the profession. It, there, there's almost a full frontal attack on the teaching profession. So that we, whereas it used to be uh, 20 years ago that the average teacher had 15 years experience, it's now down to one or two years experience. So everything that these guys are pushing has actually failed already. Uh, they're not making schools better uh, and. You can't fail your way to success. But that's only one reason why we're winning. Uh, the other reason is we're organizing. Students are organizing, high school students are organizing, teachers are organizing and saying they will not give useless tests. Um, we have superintendents speaking out. There's one in Long Island who said, when the test scores come in, I'm throwing them out. They're garbage. Uh, we have uh, students in college organizing against this corporate takeover. So I see all these things happening, whether it's Tennessee or Louisiana, state of Washington, uh, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, New York. And I, th I feel very hopeful that democracy will win out over big money. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family is broken and it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, yes for Elkhart. The push for privately funded, profitable charter schools to supplant our public school system is well underway. New reporting at the Washington Post lays out who 2013's biggest charter backers were, with the Walton Foundation of Walmart fortune fame topping the list at $164 million in contributions. $20 million of that went to Teach for America and $8 million to Michelle Rees' Students First. The charter model is as full of manipulative talking points as any profitable conservative or neoliberal movement. With friendly faces out front paired with money, teachers and communities don't even dare dream of amassing. Mainstream support is growing. As with any monstrous opponent, the best weapons are public awareness and grassroots efforts. In his new book, Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity, Chicago labor journalist Micah Utrecht lays out what turned an initially unpopular walkout by teachers in 2012 into a successful strike and ultimately broader support for teachers and their union throughout the city. A small group of activists within the CTU got together and decided they could do more to fight Chicago school closures, attacks on teachers, and the funding of charter schools. Then, when the strike happened, the CTU reached out to the community, teachers, students, and others, and focused on educating them on the issues. This brought citizens who hadn't realized what was happening and might have ridiculed union members appearing to just be demanding higher pay into the streets along alongside teachers and staff. This parent-teacher community campaign style has spread across the country. Parents and students stood with teachers in Boston earlier this year to oppose the expansion of charter schools. Thousands signed petitions and educated the community, mobilizing a network prepared to form a wall against outside corporate moneyed interests. 
Most of our country's communities are smaller than Boston and Chicago, however. Many are without strong union support and wonder how they are to stand up to conservative governors and skeptical voters as they work to halt charter school development and fight budget cuts under already bare-bones conditions. Teachers and parents in Elkhart, Indiana, decided their students were worth fighting for despite the odds. Yes for Elkhart is a referendum to support the Elkhart Community School System's more than 12,000 students by repairing aging facilities, increasing safety, and improving transportation. The vote takes place on May 4th, and despite the extremely conservative political and social climate in the city, public education campaigns and outspoken teachers make this referendum winnable. Communities across the country should take note. The Yes for Elkhart model is repeated. When people hear how conditions affect their friends and neighbors from those friends and neighbors, they rally to support them, even if it adds a few dollars each year to their property or income taxes. No matter where you live, these are the grassroots efforts we should be amplifying. Let's build on wins and repeat what works in school districts and cities from coast to coast. We do have power at the local level. Find out what's happening to the schools in your community and see if the Yes for Elkhart and Chicago Teachers Union's efforts can change conditions as we work to rebuild the foundation of our nation public education system. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? There's a number of plays and parables you could write about charter schools. One of the things that's so interesting about what's going on in Harlem is that it really distills this problem that's happening on a national level on a like kind of very hyper-local level, which is quite helpful. Yeah. So, of course, what's going on in Harlem is there's a building that houses two public schools and, I believe, an additional charter school, PS149 and PS811. PS811 is a school in, sorry for all the numbers, (laughs) District 75. (laughs) District 75 is a non-geographic school district for New York City students with highest need disabilities. So those schools exist all across the city, all five boroughs. They're often housed within other school buildings, co-located, if you will. So you might have one floor that is a school that serves these high-need students, which can include children with autism, children with emotional or behavior, very high-need emotional behavior disorders, multiple disabilities, that type of thing. So this building up in Harlem that already had lost space to one of to one of Eva Moskowitz's charters, Success Academy, PS811, which is the school that serves the special needs kids, had already lost space. They had lost, I think, their music room and... They had lost like several classrooms to this charter school. And to, to kind of zoom out from there and to be like, well, why isn't this just about Harlem? So de Blasio basically reversed a co-location decision that Bloomberg had done that would have granted them more space, that would have displaced the 811 kids even more and left them without rooms to do physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. They would have had to do that in the hallways if this expansion had been granted, basically. And that's what caused this latest huge dust-up between de Blasio and Moskowitz. Right. So de Blasio was, no, you can't take more rooms in this building if the 811 kids need their related services rooms, their rooms for physical therapy and speech therapy, 
Moskowitz was like, why are you stopping the charter school movement? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. why, why are you making my kids homeless? Right. Why don't you care about minority children and, and all that? So from there then to zoom out and to say, well, this isn't just about this one building in Harlem. This is illustrative of the entire problem with charter schools is that the framework behind charter schools is the kind of ideological framework that proponents of charter schools put forward is, listen, we're just offering more choices. Who doesn't want more choices? If you're a parent and you don't like the neighborhood public school that your kid is zoned to go to, shouldn't you have a choice to be able to send them to a charter school? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that sounds great. Right. So, okay, choice. Great. You know, so then you can choose between the public school and the charter school. Now, let's imagine, you know, a building that's split in half because this is often the way it is in New York City that schools are sharing space. So let's say you have one building, half public, half charter. Parents have choice. Great. Public charter. Now, if the like line that where the public school ends and the charter school begins keeps moving over, and suddenly there's less and less public school in that same building and more and more charter school. So if we go from two floors each and two floors each to three floors charter, one, one floor public. Right. Then, okay, so charters are presenting a choice, but they seem to be also kind of taking away the choice of public school to some extent because that now that public school has less space. Or maybe this, that public school is still admitting the same amount of kids, but they're over capacity for who's in the cafeteria, who's in the, how many kids are in the hallways, all that. So, all right, so then we're not just talking about an additional choice. We're talking about a choice that's actually kind of like shoving something else out of the way. And then... And maybe not taking on the students that it's shoving out of the way. Right, and that's really the key. It's, it's that not only do you have... Do you not have, you know, two fair and equal uh, choices that with equal, you know, space and resources? If you have this charter school, then that we, we imagine in this building that's taking up more and more space, making less and less space for the public school. If that public school, as is the case up at PS 811, serves kids with high need disabilities who need certain types of instruction, who need certain types of teachers, certain types of classrooms. By that, I mean, I don't mean like physical types of classrooms, but classrooms that serve 12 kids instead of 24 kids or whatever. Like 12 one ones. Exactly. Um, Which is 12 students, one teacher, one para. Yeah, exactly. If we're not only disappearing the public school space, but disappearing that space without then offering the 12 one one class that was offered in the public school space, then... We're not talking about choice at that point because what choice do, does the parent have of the child who needs the 1211 class? At that point, we're not saying, listen, this is, this is just one more option for parents. Uh, we're, we're saying, uh, you know, no, this, this choice is better than the other choice, public school. It needs more space because we're doing better. Our test scores are better, which is what Moskowitz says, which Diane Ravitch is fantastic at pointing out that that's all juked stats, basically. Um, that, that, that charter schools don't actually perform better than public schools, but that we're, that, that at this point, charters are actually, again, and this is happening on the, like, literally happening in this building up in Harlem, but also happening nationally. Nationally, charters serve less, uh, special needs students. They serve much, uh, far, they serve far less high need special needs students. So, you know, they may have, um, you know, they may serve, uh, kids with special needs who can be in a general ed classroom, but they, uh, 
uh, are much less likely to serve kids who need to be in a specialized classroom because they have more um, high-need disabilities. <laughs> but public schools have to take everyone. Right. Public, like Because of the right to an education, public schools have to serve um, everybody. They have to create spaces for those high-need students. Um, there are charters that specifically serve – there are some charters that do specifically serve high-need students. There's one up in Harlem, actually. Um, but that's also something that um, that some disability advocates don't like that or, or they'll, they'll, they'll criticize because um, really uh, uh, kind of like uh, separating kids with, with special needs, isolating them or – you know, keeping them in, uh, like, like, like the best case scenario for a, for a child with special needs, if they need an individual, like, if they need like a 1211 classroom, if they need special instruction, is that they're still in a school with, uh, with general ed kids. Not that they're completely isolated. Right, because integration of children with all types of needs is good for everybody. That's just a positive educational experience, not only for disabled kids, but for non-disabled kids to be around disabled kids. And, you know, and actually some of the people I talked to with District 75, I've said on the show before, like, that it worries me that some District 75 schools are just kind of like given a hallway or a floor um, in buildings with general ed schools because you know, the building is responsible for meeting the needs of those students. If the building, for example, has security guards or, or safety officers that don't know that the children with autism, some of them might want to, might run out the building, for example, that creates a safety problem. But the people I spoke with said, you know, it's good that D75 schools are housed with other schools because that means that provides opportunities for integration, right? So special ed only charter schools, it's you know it's a positive thing that that those schools do serve high need students, but there's also criticism to be made of like if your choices are like a charter school that basically doesn't serve any special needs students, and then a charter school also that like only serves special needs students, that's not integration. And integration is the ideal form of education for all types of students. At, at that point, then we have to say, all right, uh, there's a number of things to criticize about the charter movement, whether it be labor, whether it be uh, testing, whether it be uh, all sorts of, there's, there's a number of things that should be criticized. But if they are not inclusive and they're replacing public schools, which have an obligation to be inclusive, then that is, that is a fundamental attack on public education. As you know, uh, Rahm Emanuel closed 50 public schools last year in Chicago. They will be rela uh, replaced eventually by private-run charter schools that get public funding. In 1996, there were zero privately-run schools in Chicago. There are more than 130 today with more set to open uh, later this year. Charter and private, other privately run schools serve one out of every seven Chicago public school students. 
According to the Chicago Sun-Times and Medill Data Project at Northwest, uh, Northwestern University, even as many parents have embraced the new schools, there's little evidence in standardized test results that charters are performing better than traditional schools operated by the Chicago public school system. In fact, in 2013, CPS schools had a higher percentage of elementary students who exceeded the standards for state tests for reading and math than schools that are privately run with Chicago taxpayer funds. In other words, what this study in Chicago shows, this 2013 study, not only does it show the same thing that a previously unreleased study in 2010 showed in Chicago, that charter schools do not outperform public schools in the aggregate, but it also shows what we've seen with nationally. Nationally, charter schools do not outperform public schools in the aggregate. That doesn't mean that charter schools don't have a place in terms of uh, providing potential innovations. But these are not supposed to be an ends because they are not more effective. They are far more effective, though, when it comes to corruption they are far more or less effective in serving all students across the board, special needs students. They are uh, far more effective in enriching the hedge funds that underwrite them, the testing regimes that are employed by them, the other private services uh, that seek out charter schools and develop corporate relationships with them. That's what they're good for. And also from an ideological standpoint, they're good if you want to further privatize this stuff and enrich the private sector off the backs of taxpayer money. This is just another redistribution ploy. And there is no evidence that you get better educational outcomes from them. Any charter school that uses experiments that are not scalable is useless. Except in very rare extreme circumstances. And I'm not even sure what those are off the top of my head. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. How are the ways that this is happening nationally? Uh, I think I've got a pretty decent sense now of what's going on in Harlem, but is it actually just that exact same phenomenon happening in, in cities throughout the country? It's hard to be as specific as you can in this one building uh -huh. in Harlem when you're talking nationally, but, but the charter movement... 
nationally, and, and charters contain multitudes. Charters have been around for 20 years now. There are some charters that people, that those critical of ed reform, corporate ed reform, are like, you know, some charters do fine. And, and they really are nonprofits and they really, they really do value parental input. The problem with, with like Moskowitz's schools, for example, and from there I think you can move out to like the Michelle Ree kind of like national corporate ed reform movement is that this is, there's money, 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 money behind these schools. And Michelle Ree's organization, Students First, is in I think 18 states. And Michelle Ree is going into public schools, grading them and saying these schools are failing. We need to replace them with charters. So then you say, oh, this public school is failing. Let's replace it with a charter. And then that charter, and again, this is, we have to speak generally, but nationwide, public schools serve about 13% of public school populations are special ed. In 27 states with charters, the special ed population is only 8%. So about half the amount, well, not as, not exactly half, but 13 versus 8% served of special needs students. And so if this, if we're closing public schools nationwide, this is what Students First is doing and replacing them with schools that don't serve everybody, then that's a big problem. And it's not necessarily that they don't immediately, I mean, there are a lot of these schools are lotteries. So they, it's not that they say we don't take special needs kids, but these schools have super high rates of suspension, higher, according to one Diane Ravitch article, Moskowitz's school has a, a suspension rate of like 300%, uh, the neighboring public schools in Harlem. And that's because the charter is written in such a way that, uh, you're able to suspend kids for not keeping grades up mm-hmm. or for not, um, uh, for, there's, there's basically so many rules that if you, uh, want to find a way to suspend a kid, you can. Is that more or less? Right. If you opt into the charter school movement, then you are kind of surrendering some of the rights that the public schools offer you. So you say, all right, like, sure, like, let my kid into your charter school. But, right, they have, they're, you know, if they're hyperactive and they can't sit down or if they, uh, you know, are not doing well on the tests or whatever, if they, they, like, that, that, that it's, it's much easier to suspend or at least they have much higher rates of suspension. Um, and and there's also a, 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 one there was a US Department of Education study that found that a quarter I think of parents of special needs students had been told by charters basically counseled out of trying to enroll their kid in it that that charters had said your kid is not going to be a good fit here uh-huh which is like according to the council for exceptional children they were like that is illegal <laughs> that is yeah. like against the Americans with Disabilities Act uh you cannot if you're a public charter school which is what these charter schools identify as you cannot like counsel a parent against enrolling their special needs child and that is so so shady you wouldn't be a good fit and you know maybe you wouldn't be a good fit because you don't offer a 1211 class right but that's right because like, that's like a deliberate choice right but then that like if if they are going to call themselves public charter schools like they need to provide they need to meet the needs of the populations they're serving yeah we we made our school so that it's not a good fit for people we don't want it to be a good fit for right right so then of course so then you know and then you have public schools who you know need to take all the kids so uh right so then if you're saying well the charter schools are are scoring so much higher isn't this a great sign for charter schools aren't public schools doing terribly Really, it's just that if the charter schools are scoring higher, which again is contestable, it is because they are not taking the kids who don't do well on tests because it's not a good fit and sending those kids to public schools. And then those kids, you know, may not be doing well on tests for a number of reasons. And then people like Michelle Ree can say public schools are failing. 
struggling schools. So what's the what's the like end the end of of all of this? I mean, at some point you either say, well, public education just isn't a thing in the United States anymore, um, like like. And you just actually get rid of every public school and you only have charter schools and some children go to school and some don't. Or you, you still have these public schools, but they become, they, but they're at like 10,000 times capacity or something. I mean, is, is that like, is that what the, the future could look like? You know, it, it, it's like, it, it's, this is one of those things where in order to, to try to figure out what the future looks like, this is only, like I said, this is, the special needs aspect is really only one small part of what is a multi, multifaceted assault on public education. And so when you take this, you know, certain students don't have access to these schools that are replacing public schools, and then you add um, those schools that re- are replacing public schools don't have a unionized workforce, and you add that public schools... Um, uh, are expected to keep up with these high-stakes tests that could reflect poorly on the teachers, and the teachers can lose their jobs. The teachers don't have job stability. That me, and I just saw an article about how senior teachers are becoming an endangered species, where senior teachers don't want to keep teaching. Um, so, uh, I mean, at, at that point, it, you really have, you know, and then you add in Teach for America and all the all mm-hmm. the you know kind of um, stepping stone. I'll teach and the I'll teach the poor children for two years and then go on to become an executive. I mean, I certainly think that if you take all these things in at once and and think, I mean, it's there's certainly like a grim. I, I think that without being without too much speculation, you can say there is a very grim future here that we can imagine that that basically involves pushing out teachers. Uh, the, 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 the public school teachers who tend to be women and women of color, uh-huh. um, push, making their job conditions so unstable and, and so, uh, unsustainable, um, and, and, you know, disappearing spaces, um, and then bringing in this, this non-unionized workforce that doesn't accept all students. I mean, I think that is like a, a hellish vision of yeah. the future. On the other hand, um, you know, this tiny symbolic affront that de Blasio did in New York is like functioning as this huge rhetorical, uh, like rallying cry, rallying cry, this huge national sim- symbol. Like, uh, we, like, we put the brakes on three of your schools and, you know, Cuomo is like, there's, there's <laughs> like, all the governor. Yeah. I mean, really, like, there's, there's, uh, legislation in Albany now to basically provide more funding to charter schools because they're under attack. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and that, but there's also like these people are organizing test boycotts, um, for the high stakes testing. Um, you know, there's some, like the Chicago teacher strike yeah, that the, Micah wrote about. Portland teacher strike. Mm-hmm. Or, did they go on strike or did they threaten? There was something. There was some some um, uh, something big going on in Portland. I forget the specifics. And you have the the movement of radical educators and all that. I mean, so I mean, I think I think that there is certainly forces like you know, and and there have been forces coming together to like really dismantle public education, which I think leads towards an incredibly grim two-tiered future, I mean, at least two tiers, certainly, uh, like a kind of 1% of education and people below that. 
but at the same time, there's also like, I mean, people are getting fucking sick of this, you know, mm-hmm. like people are, are like, no. So it, it really is a battle. I mean, it's, I know that like using war terminology is problematic or whatever, but whatever word you will, you will allow that is like, these are two sides that are really in it. And the charter school movement has a ton of money and a ton of star power and a ton of strength, but the public school movement has a ton of people and a ton of people who have a lot at stake. So it is a civil rights battle. California. I just got done listening to your podcast about the prison system, and I noticed and appreciated how well you guys discussed how important rehabilitation is. As a former participant, I will say, in the justice system and in the prisons, I was able to be rehabilitated. I'm 23 years old and was severely addicted to drugs and because of that, we commit many crimes. Um, after being released, however, I was able to get rehabilitated through my own means. Thankfully, I come from a somewhat well-to-do family. But the gentleman who taught who taught yoga inside San Quentin during the eclipse, I thought that some of the things he had to say were extremely powerful and useful because he, he talked a bit, you know more about becoming aware of kind of what, you know, what you're here for and, and, and especially when he talks about breathing and, and waiting to think before you act and certain things like that and it, it just goes to show the importance of rehabilitating prisoners and, and I have, take, have taken it upon myself since um, rehabilitating myself to carry on with my life in a way that I consider as normal. I've gotten a bachelor's degree, but I take the extra time to go to speak to people in prisons and mental institutions all the time uh, and tell them, you know, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that you can change the way that you are, you know, and and I, I, I felt so many times when I was in the system that there was no escaping it, that you know, you, you learn, you know, things that are illegal and easier way to get away with crimes by talking to other inmates. But, you know, that's not the way to, to continue a successful life. And especially at such a young age, I, I believe it was necessary to continue my life on a path that kept me out of prison because of how messed up it is. And so, like I said, I, I got a college degree. I study psychology and uh, I... I go and speak to people in mental institutions and in prisons all the time. But the most important part of that, in my eyes, is that I don't do it for them. And even though I know what I say will help them, and I'm, I'm very regularly thanked tremendously by the people's families or by the, the inmates or patients themselves, I do it for myself because it is. It's a way for me to every day see what I once was and see people that are in the process of becoming what I am now and that it is possible. And, and just talking to them helps me. It's like, you know, 
know, as does anything, repeating yourself and repeating anything, it becomes a habit. And so every day I'm thinking about what helps me and that hopefully helps them. And I know it does. And keep up the good work. I always appreciate all of your podcasts. Hi, my name is Daniel Anderson. I live in Houston. I'm from Atlanta. Um, I'm calling about uh, the the conversation about words and race. Um, there's a professor from Atlanta uh, who shared something, and then there was you who shared something. Um, and I really, I, th- I think the problem in this whole conversation is that there's a there's a mixing up of what's happening with race and class. So, so um. I, I'm, a, I'm a privileged black male. I had, I had, I had a grandma who had a master's. Um, the thing that predicts most if you graduate from college is your parents graduate from college. So I actually know a lot of black people who have degrees, who are doctors and lawyers, and all those types of things. Um, and it's because of it's because of class. Of course, racism has has made it for the longest period, particularly historically, that black people um, are of, of lower class. Very, very often, more often than, than white people are percentage-wise. Um, but right now, in America, right now, class is more important than race. There's a particular book, Dawson Conley from NYU has called uh, "Being Black, Living in the Red," when he goes through class and race. And one thing he points out is that at the same wealth levels, not income levels, wealth, uh, you add, wealth is added up income and and uh, you know like your assets. At the same wealth level, black people do as well as, and sometimes better than white people in terms of education. So, so I think with, in, in this whole discussion, people like Obama, uh, like uh, Obama and Michelle Obama, who, who say some of the same things, Don Lemon, Bill Cosby, all these types of people, they're talking to poor black people, um, as opposed to, as opposed to like talking to, they, they think they're talking to black people, they're talking to poor black people. Uh, and that's a, that's a class issue which should be dealt with in a class way. Racism matters, but it matters it matters significantly less than class right now. Uh, so I think really what was solved is, um, is is working on some class things. But but just to realize once again that I think the premise of this argument is false. So all the, all these people arguing about about people of color and uh, and in particular about black people and and, and uh, you know that, that how what they wear and all the type of stuff. I think they're missing a lot. I, I, I went to I went to Yale and I went to West University. Uh, and once again, very privileged black person. And I know a lot of privileged black people who who've done very predictably well because that's their class background. All right, great to listen to your show. Uh, I really hope you play this because I, I, I'm very passionate about this argument. I think it's a very misinformed argument. All right, bye-bye. Hey, Jay, it's Jason from Iowa. Just uh, wanted to kind of expound upon one of the points you made in the episode about race a while back. You were talking about the four points to keeping or to pushing back against privilege. And one of them I find kind of interesting. I think it's the one about um, letting other people speak, shutting up for a while. But that kind of happens in areas where there's a lot of diversity racially or sexual identity speaking, your gender identity speaking, the area I'm from is really homogenous where a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about these things out in public. There's not a lot of public spaces like bars or 
venues for where people hang out just to talk and discuss these things openly. So it's really not something that's talked about where I'm from often enough, I think. And that that's really hard for me to talk to other people about race when I don't generally experience that myself. I don't really know what that experience is like because my, again, my interactions with people of other races or identities is generally limited. I do know a few people who are of the LGBT community and more specifically of the T community as well. I do know a few people who are Hispanic. I do know a few African Americans, but other than those experiences that I've heard from people, it's it's difficult to gauge what other people are experiencing based on those few experiences that I've heard of. But again, a lot of people who I do know of those different things other than my cisgender white male self. People who don't have those things that I experience on a daily basis, and they just don't want to talk about it because they're like, no, you wouldn't understand. And I think that's another part of it. It's where it's as as much as it's a, a thing that people with white privilege have to shut up, people who don't have that need to speak up. I, I would say that would have to be point number five. If you don't have white privilege, speak up. So we can understand or at least have a better idea of what you're going through. And I know for some people it's hard to open up about that, but overcoming that would be a great way to push back against white privilege as well. So people with white privilege can have a better idea. And I mean, with what you're doing on the show, it gives me a little better idea of what people outside of my little bubble in the middle of BFE, it gives me a little better idea of what people are experiencing outside of that bubble. And I do appreciate what you're doing with taking on the differences in race and taking on white privilege and taking on transgender rights. I appreciate what you're doing because it's been one of the things that I've I've championed even though I don't, even though it's something I don't experience, so I can't understand it as well as somebody who does go through the oppression that they feel. I try to understand that because I want to know what people are experiencing of the human condition. I just want to know these things, and I don't want to be those things. It goes against everything I stand for to be anti-trans, anti-black, anti-Latino, anti anti-anything that's not white. It's partially me keeping my white privilege in check, or at least trying to, and it's partially me trying to understand people as I love to do. Your shows have been great on white privilege and transgender rights and LGBT rights and queer identity issues and stuff like that. So I, I've been enthralled and I've been trying to catch up on the episodes. I've been trying to do that more because the episodes are so good. Thank you for at least trying to put it in perspective for those of us who can't really put it in perspective straight away. You've been a great help, Jay. Thank you very much, and I appreciate the show and everything you do. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all her work on our social media and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So what I'm pretty sure is happening right now is that Elka from Fort Wayne, who has sort of turned herself into our, our default uh, oppression correspondent here on this show, 
she is furiously dialing her phone right now to respond to Jason from Iowa, and I'm I'm going to do my best to save her the effort. Uh, so so Jason, who we just heard from, is obviously coming at the issue of uh, racism and oppression and privilege from the right place. He's trying to to understand, and that's great. Where he really stepped in it is sort of encouraging oppressed people to speak up about their oppression more so that he can learn more about it. That's just, I I know where you're coming from. <laughs> That's just not the way to go about it. Uh, first of all, there is no shortage of people speaking out from oppressed communities trying to get the word out about how their oppression works. So if you want that information, it is really easy to get. There is no shortage of, of that type of perspective out there if you want to look for it. But you have to keep in mind that there's a difference between talking about sort of the group as a whole, you know, uh, Oppression Inc. as a conglomeration saying, hey, like they need to get their message out and then bringing that down to the individual level saying, hey, you know, anyone who's oppressed should talk more about their oppression so that the privileged people can understand better. Because, I mean, what you're saying is, Hey, in addition to living your life of oppression as the, one of the very, you know, he was from Iowa, being one of the very few people of color, gender, or sexual identity uh, minorities in the area, in addition to living your life that way in a group that is very homogenous, as he said, uh, making you an extreme minority, in addition to living that life, would you please also go out of your way to teach me about your oppression? Like, that's just an onus you don't need to put on people when there's other ways to get that information. It, it is no oppressed person's job to educate you. That is your job to take on for yourself. If you would like to jump in on any of these conversations, the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained